Can the new Suicide Squad fix everything that was wrong about the old Suicide Squad? Yep. Sorry, Simon. One second. Sorry. Uh, I haven't actually fixed up my levels yet, and it was a little bit low. Three, two, one. Three, uh, two, one, two, three. Hello. There we go. And bringing you in there. And then this one needs to be higher. Sorry. Okay. Yep. Rockets. Sorry. Three, two. Can the new Suicide Squad fix everything that was wrong about the old Suicide Squad? How does a former Batman reflect on his life? Was anyone ever going to watch a Swamp Thing series? Do UFOs exist? That's a lot of questions for two men to answer, but we'll give it a shot, plus lots more on this week's screen watching. This is not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Welcome to Screen Watching, everyone. I'm Simon Foster, and joining me... Let's try and give him a Suicide Squad name. He would be the Button Pusher, maybe. Uh, this is Dan Barrett. How are you, Dan? Uh, good morning, sir. Oh, yeah, I, I guess I could be a Button Pusher. Sure, why not? I know you contribute more than just pushing buttons. I'm not quite sure what that is, but I know you do contribute more, and we're all very grateful for it. So, uh, very busy week this week on on our screen watching show. Look, hugely busy. So the last few weeks, we've been a little bit sort of lacking in stuff to be watching and talking about because of the Olympics. But this week, like, there's some real marquee things that we want to start chatting about. Now, we are going to talk about the Suicide Squad. We're in a very unique position here in Australia, Simon, where most of the country do not have access to this movie. Exactly so we right. are doing a review for what the people of Adelaide, Perth and Hope are. Oh, let's not forget Darwin. And Darwin, and some but, of the regionals <laughs> as well. I know that Phase Twin point. Cinema at Taree is screening it, and I know that the uh, some of the cinemas in the, the regions of uh, Victoria have it. I know the Birch Carroll Coil at Coffs Harbour on the far north coast, they're screening it. So shout out to our regional listeners. Yeah, okay, well, shout out to those guys, but the bulk <laughs> of people can't access this movie, so... We should say we are going to talk about the movie, but we're not going to do it at a particularly sort of deep sort of spoiler level at all. So if, like us, okay, you're in a position... I mean, Simon and I have both seen the movie, so we are going to talk about it. But if you haven't seen the movie and you just want to hear a bit of a cursory conversation around the movie... You'll be fine sticking with us. We're not going to really ruin anything for you. Very true. We are going to ruin Hacks. Yeah. We'll probably ruin Val. And I think you're going to ruin Mr. Corman. So if you need us to ruin anything, we'll certainly stand up for that as well. Yeah. I mean, you and I are not afraid to just destroy people's interest in watching something. It stinks. Simon, can we kick off with the Suicide Squad? I wouldn't take such extreme measures if this mission went more important than you could possibly imagine. Are you in or out? Good. Let's meet your team. It's okay, I'm not okay. Each member is chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities. I need to feel the raindrops on my head, on my head. Hey guys, sorry I'm late. Had to go number two. Good to know. Task Force X, a squad of inmates from Bell Reef Penitentiary, are sent to the South American island nation of Coto Maltese after the government is overthrown by an anti-American regime, now led by Colonel Rick Flagg 
and angry super soldier Bloodsport, a new crew comprised of patriotic killer Peacemaker, Shark Hulk Nanau, Oddball Polka Dot Man, Rodent Ally Ratcatcher, and the great Harley Quinn enter the country undetected. Under the orders from intelligence officer Amanda Waller, they are tasked with destroying Jutenheim, a Nazi-era laboratory that holds a secretive experiment known as Project Starfish. And so the framework is set for director James Gunn to go about as bonkers as a studio-backed blockbuster will allow. The hard R US rating means that dark, gleeful corner of his mind that conceived and directed the alien invasion film Slither and the superhero takedown Super, which I think is his best film, is unleashed. The result is a wild, often unwieldy, but totally awesome comedic bloodbath. Two points. I did expect Margot Robbie to steal the show as Harley Quinn, but I did not expect Daniela Daniela McKehor to be so central and so good as Ratcatcher 2. And I think Bloodsport is the most engaging and interesting that Idris Elba has been on screen. He struggled to find that leading man role that matches his hard edge with his charisma, and that's what comes through in The Suicide Squad. So while certain other members of my household harumphed at much of the film, i got to say I had a blast. I thought it was good fun. Look, uh, first of all, Idris Elba, Luther, the TV series, is probably his best outing. And I guess The Wire, I'm not sure if you've heard of that. But I know of it, outside yeah. of that, these big screen efforts to try to make Idris Elba a global like cinema superstar, I think, have all failed. But you're right, I think this one is definitely the one that nails it for him. This film, it was something which I was a little bit sort of nervous about because I'd seen that previous Suicide Squad film, didn't really quite nail it. And the Suicide Squad, it's not really a comic uh, series that I had much interest in, but I always liked the premise of it, mm. which takes the idea of you've never heard of any of the characters in the movie before, outside of maybe Harley Quinn, but that's absolutely part of the design of the Suicide Squad because the comics were very much about taking obscure characters from the DC universe Characters that you may have heard of before if you just happened to have stumbled across the comic that they decided that they wanted to reference. But they were taking these obscure villains that were used in like one or two issues here and there, put them in there, and they become cannon fodder. So it's entirely possible while reading the book that any of the characters that you're reading about could possibly die. As the series went on, there were a couple of characters that became mainstays throughout it. So uh, Rick Flagg, I believe, is one of the characters that is... um, I think created for the Suicide Squad comic and it is in both of the feature films here. Captain Boomerang as well was a bit of a fan favourite in the comics and does make appearances in both of these films. And Harley Quinn's kind of been added into the mix in the last couple of years. Outside of that, anyone is up for grabs. And in here, you've got these very obscure DC Comics characters. So if you're not really part of DC Comics lore, if you don't really know it, you're not left out by any of this. Bloodshot is a character that appeared in a issue of Superman back in like 1988, thereabouts, and he's been used maybe two or three times since then. Very different character that we see on screen here to the actual comic book character as well. King Shark is from a uh, three or four issue run of Superboy back in like 1995. Like these are not prominent characters by any means at all, but they are sort of utilized here in forms that are kind of reminiscent of their original incarnation in the comics, but by and large outside of the idea of the characters and even that's a little bit sort of tangential it really is james gunn just kind of grabbing ip and just doing whatever the hell he wants with it yeah that's what and the james gunness of it all yeah like guardians of the galaxy is obviously what people know him best for you mentioned some of the other sort of previous films this is very much reminiscent of his previous films yeah anyone expecting a guardians uh sequel it is certainly not that at all no and if anything this speaks to james gunn and his interest so much more than i think those guardians of the galaxy films did as well like this was very much my bag in a way that guardians wasn't quite yeah i agree and 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 anyone who's seen super the rain wilson film um 
will know that he loves sort of tearing down the the preconceptions of the superhero um, stereotype or archetype, and um, and I think th- which was a, a wonderful film and one of my favorite, probably my favorite James Gunn film, and and I think he gets very close to that sort of anarchic view of of what superhero dem is in in um, the Suicide Squad. Tears down and rips apart oh, quite boy. literally in this film. <laughs> there are quite a few limbs that are taken away. Yeah, he doesn't skimp on the blood and guts, and I think that's a good thing. Um, we did promise no spoilers. The film opens with um, a sequence that gave me a little bit of a shock. I wasn't expecting it all to unfold <laughs> in the way that it did, um, but it all sort of comes together after that. And uh, and and um, look, I had a blast watching it. I think it's a, a really handsomely mounted show. I think he shows some real sort of flair and and imagination with the way he bridges scenes and moves the narrative around in like a non-linear fashion. So um, there was a certain point where I sort of switched off the critical brain and just said, look, I'm really just loving this as a as a the teenage boys coming out of me and I think it nails that sort of energy. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It is exceedingly funny, uh, some of the characters in it. So the weasel, who I think is an original James Gunn creation. I don't know if it's from the comics, but I could be wrong on that. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, you get introduced to him in the first 30 seconds and my God, if that is not going to be the character of the year, I don't know who's going to be like, the Weasel is fantastic. Yeah, he was. This film is just exceptionally funny. It's gloriously violent. It is bloody. It is uh, not short of a couple of swear words here and oh, there. Yeah. Like, this is very much an adult movie. There's going to be a few people who attempted to watch this with their kids, but certainly maybe just rethink that a little bit unless they're a bit more mature and, you know, you definitely think you can handle it because this is certainly not Guardians of the Galaxy. This is really a very bloody, violent adult superhero and superhero is a pretty loose loose phrase for any of this. It's called The Suicide Squad. It is in cinemas where there are cinemas as we speak on HBO Max also for our US listeners. Um, and if you do get a chance to see it on the big screen, we're not giving away too much of the ending, but it does have a very big, spectacular, fun-filled ending that I think would work great on the on the larger screen. So uh, check it out when you can. Dan, hey, can I... Can, can I make a bit of a negative comment about the film? Yes. Uh, you just referred to it as a fun-filled ending. I actually think the movie loses a little bit of steam in the last 10, 15 minutes. Like okay. it, yep. it does something which is incredibly fun and something that I never thought I would ever see on the screen before. And if you've seen the trailer, it's not much of a surprise to know sort of where the film's leading. Mm. However, like I never thought I'd see this. Like It ends with a villain who is actually the first villain ever in a Justice League comic from like the mid-50s. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, like that villain is actually the biggest name villain in the entire thing, as ridiculous as that villain is. Um, <laughs> like he's got the most importance to DC Comics lore. So like it was fun seeing that on a big screen because I never thought I would ever see that in a $100 million uh, superhero spectacle film. But like the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, it kind of feels like James Gunn gives himself over to the form factor of the expectations of a superhero film as opposed to what I think probably really needed to be delivered, which was something a bit more unique and a bit more special in terms of just the structure. It just kind of felt like it went on a bit more than anything else. Granted, I'll give you that one. Let's have a look at the new uh, Stan series, Hacks. How's it going in Vegas? You and Deborah Vance, Thelma and Louise yet or what? No, but I do want to drive off a cliff. Okay, you ready to do some work? Let's see. Eat, toes, pedicure. Wow. It's like watching Picasso sing. You mean paint? No. When the show launched a few months ago in the US, it very quickly found a very passionate fan base. 
This week, the show is finally streaming here, making the show one of the year's most anticipated series. With echoes of the Judd Apatow film Funny People, Hacks is about a comedy writer who starts writing for a very famous comedian. The comedian here is Deborah Vance, a pioneering female stand-up comic who's been an industry mainstay since at least the 1970s. She's very much in the mold of comedians like the late Joan Rivers or Rita Rudner. Now, for years, Vance has been a Las Vegas show act, but she's been reaching, in, but she's reaching near the end of her run now. Her material is getting to be a little bit stale, and she's gotten very comfortable in life and obscenely wealthy. Meanwhile, you've got millennial bisexual comedy writer Ava Daniels, who's a bitter, cynical woman who's found herself cancelled by the mainstream after a tweet's gone bad. She's got no career options, but she reluctantly takes a paid gig in Las Vegas. She's got very little interest in being there. She considers Vance to be a bit of a washed-up has-been. And meanwhile, you've got Vance, who's got no interest in this young comic writing material for her. The two clash, but over the course of the first season, a begrudging friendship and respect grows. Hacks, it's a story about female friendship and about two women lost in the world and the barriers each of them have set up to keep the world at arm's length. By now, you've probably heard about how great Jean Smart is in the show, and the show does not disappoint on that level. In fact, it doesn't really disappoint on any level. The hype surrounding the show is completely justified. It's laugh out loud funny, with great characters you want to spend time with, even if both of them are awful, self-absorbed. Okay. Yes. Look, uh, they are that word, um, and I, that's probably that's probably why I had a, I had a little bit of trouble warming to this film. I'm getting a little bit sentimental in my old age, so this Serious. kind of hard edged um, cynicism and this sort of uh, bittersweet friendship kind of stuff is, isn't something I warm to immediately, uh, but. Continued watching uh, has convinced me that this is a fairly deep, almost profound look at these two um, very different people at different stages of their career coming together to help each other out. It actually has a very warm heart at the at the centre of it. Um, we should note that it's the title is plural, plural. Um, so hacks doesn't just refer to the Gene Smart character having struggling with the nearing the end of her career, but um, also the, the, the young writer who herself is sort of skirting on the, the edges of, of uh, a career in the in the entertainment industry. So um, i I, I got to say that the moments where these two face off against against each other is some, can be pretty brutal at times, but it's um, but it makes for ultimately a, a, a really sort of nice look at, 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 at female friendships and, and professional um, partnerships. Out of curiosity, how much of the show have you seen? I'm three episodes in. Okay, because I would say, because I, I expected that was probably about what you were going to say, because I would say those first three or four episodes, like there's definitely a bit of a barrier, I think, for the audience to get on board with the show. So okay. you're kind of meeting these characters. Both of them are such unpleasant people. And so I think it takes maybe a couple of episodes for you to find your way into their life. And it's as both of them are starting to find out more about each other that the show becomes... More palatable, I guess, is maybe the easiest sort of way to phrase it. And one of the aspects of the show that I really enjoy is that each of them do develop a respect for each other, but at no point do they ever really reveal that respect for one another if, in fact, like, they're really developing the respect for each other when they're away from each other's presence. And they each have, like, their own little moments of inter interiority 
where they sort of come to terms with who the other person is and sort of take that away. And they bring that into the next meeting only to be disappointed by the experience that they have with one another. But like that just keeps on building. Like there's these great sequences midway through the season where you're seeing the younger character, Ava, watching old videos of uh, Deborah Vance sort of in her prime and understanding where she came from and contextualizing it in her mind. And when you see that, like you just sort of see Ava having the greatest time in the world with this woman that in real life, she just does not get along with at all. But she starts to understand who she is and what she's about. And you start to take that on as a viewer. Like you feel your way into their interiority in a way that I just don't think that many shows really manage to achieve that. And for that, I think the show is incredibly special. I'm dropping this on you unprepared, but who are the show's runners? Where do, where were the, who are the writers of this and what, what might we know them from in the past? Because I, I do like the way they write character and write dialogue. So you're not really dealing here with writers who have an extensive filmography, but there are some notable works. So one of the creators is Paul Downs, who was one of the guys responsible for working with the Broad City team in creating that series. Yep. Uh, you've also got writers who spent some time on series like Parks and Recreation and, um, again, Broad City. I can uh, a lot of young writers. So this is very much their first sort of big work. All right, I'm keen to see it. It's called Hacks. I'm keen to finish it off anyway. It is on the Stan Network here in Australia, HBO Max over in the US. Simon, you took a look at the new documentary feature, Val, on Amazon Prime Video. My name is Val Kilmer. I'm an actor. I've lived a magical life. I've captured quite a bit of it. I was the first guy I knew to own a video camera. Here we are, filming ourselves. Is that a video rolling? Yeah. Oh, that's really cool, Val. I have thousands of hours of videotapes and film reels that I've shot throughout my life and career. Shut the video camera off. I will keep it on until we rehearse. Oh, damn. I was recently diagnosed with throat cancer. Val Kilmer, for me, has forever existed in this limbo somewhere between brilliant, talented character actor and A-list heartthrob star. His darkest period professionally was also his biggest box office success, 1995's Batman Forever. His best performances were often in films that didn't find an audience, like The Doors or Ghost in the Darkness or Wonderland, or in really vivid support parts like Tombstone or True Romance, Heat or Top Gun. Now, in the documentary Val, he provides a first-person account of his life, the work he's known for, the loves he's had, the man he is now. All the footage is taken from his personal archive of material shot either by him or of him from his earliest high school plays right through to the playful cancer survivor he is today. His personal journal provides the narrative read in voiceover uh, provided by his son Jack. Now, just as the man is a unique film industry figure, so is Val that, that rarest of beasts, a star profile that issues, even undermines the, the subject celebrity to provide not an actor's portrait, but an everyman journey of a really complex individual. Industry milestones, like working with his idol Marlon Brando on the infamous Queensland shoot of The Island of Dr Moreau, almost seem like cute asides compared to the insight into the lifelong grief of losing his teenage brother Ben at 15, or wooing and then losing his wife, actress Joanne Wally. Um, The darkness of his past is balanced by the man's boundless playfulness. At one point, he collapses in front of the camera, only to rise from the floor giggling at his son's panicked reaction to the fall. He can be a bit of an arsehole, as many of his directors and co-stars can attest, and which he acknowledges and attempts to put into perspective in the doco. 
Um, his late career pre-cancer project, Citizen Twain, in which he dons very heavy makeup for the one-man show that explores the life of America's great humorist, it hints not only at the immense talent, but also the rare empathy that Val Kilmer brought to his most invested characters, and those elements are what shines through in Val. I think this is a beautiful work. Val Kilmer's career is, you referred to the asides in the documentary, but it almost feels like his entire career is an aside. Like, he's got all these sort of great credits, but then, like, immediately after, like, these great roles, suddenly he just subsides, like, just disappears again, and you never really manage to get, like, a beat on what his career has actually been, other than maybe just sort of happenstance. Yeah, look, he, and he, he's, hasn't not had a shot at, you know, the, the, um, the leading man romantic sort of drama roles he's he he went through a period where he was trying to be that sort of leading man guy and he it never sits comfortably with him on screen um he and and then he started to get into the really darker characters if you've seen a film called uh the sultan sea in which he plays this tattooed complete nutcase um he's elvis in true romance he, you know he's he's always been an actor that's fascinated me and I do try to watch all his films because in, in the same way that, you know, Nicolas Cage has a, a sort of unpredictable element to everything he does, I always found that in a slightly more tempered way, in a, in a less edgy way than Cage, but I also found that with Kilmer and that's why I found the way he looks back at his life and his career in this documentary was was really profound and just, just really fantastic to to see all this extraordinary material, which, like I say, comes from his own archive. He's got like a warehouse of um, material that he shot on on the sets of all his films. Um, and that's what's been cut together by these two young directors who've made the doco. Yeah, maybe what it is that I find with his career is that he's so, like, teen beat magazine pretty. Yes. But at the same time, all of his films really are these sort of edgy, not quite sort of alternative sort of indie um, features like he's worked very much within sort of studio systems, but at the same time they are sort of such offbeat, sort of unusual textured films. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things I loved about this doco was that it showed him uh, at a time in his career where he was trying to get these darker leading man parts, and he shot audition tapes for people like um, uh, Scorsese for Goodfellas, and you get to see these performances that he brings to roles that he never got, and it's it's, it's a fascinating insight into what an actor has to do. Um, to get a role and all the different variations on that role that might have been had Val Kilmer been involved. I find it incredible we got through this entire segment without talking about Gay Perry from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> Which is mentioned at length in the in the doco, so it's it's arguably his last great Hollywood film, I would say, um, but it is a great, great film. Simon, I want to have a chat to you about a new Apple TV Plus series called Mr. Corman. It just feels like I blew the whole thing, like I suck as a person. You're not entitled to a perfect partner or a perfect life. I didn't leave you because you became a teacher. I left because I thought I was doing what I love with the man I love. To see me through. How was your weekend? It was great. He's some big man now. You guys walk away. No. All right, good morning. Happy Monday. Last night, a friend said to me that for the past year and a half, he hasn't been very interested in watching anything too serious. He's been looking for big, dumb comedies and action films, distractions. And I connected with what he was saying. I know I've been spending a lot of the last year and a half going back watching sitcoms and other comfort food television, but I felt a void from all of that, a cultural emptiness with a diet of primarily that kind of entertainment. Pressing play on Mr. Corman, I suddenly felt nourishment. It was a spiritual enrichment. 
Debuting on Apple TV Plus this week is Mr. Corman. It stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who also created the series and directs and writes the first episode. It's about a Los Angeles fifth grade teacher who's struggling to find his place in the world. Early in his adult life, he'd pursued a career in music, but when that dream didn't pan out, he had sought stability in his life. Like many of us, he put aside a dream and focused instead on the realities of the world. But what does that do to a person who doesn't have anything enriching to also fill that void with? Episodes deal with him seeking fulfillment, whether that's from trying to have a fun Friday night out, dealing with oppressive anxiety, or the stress of staring at your phone all night at a party and waiting for that girl who said she'd meet up with you to finally message. These are all relatively low-stakes stories, but for the titular Mr. Corman and the audience, there's no greater concerns in the world. Joseph Gordon-Levitt remains as amiable in this as he's been throughout his entire career. I don't consider him to be an especially warm presence on screen, but there's always a quality to him that's always a joy to spend time with him. He's joined here in a supporting role by Arturo Castro, who some people may remember from occasional appearances in the aforementioned Broad City. Now, like Gordon Levitt, Castro lights up the screen. A standout episode of the first season is the series' fourth episode that breaks format and focuses entirely on his character, a Guatemalan UPS delivery driver who's been friends with the titular Mr. Corman since high school. Now, every episode of the show has moments of high fantasy, reaching from short animated moments like Corman being punched out a window by a woman, to the occasional full-blown musical number. And while none of the sequences I saw in the first five episodes I've watched for review have completely bowled me over, I really appreciated this as a show that's reaching for something. With a half-hour episode structure about a man looking for meaning in life, with moments of whimsy and fantasy sprinkled throughout it, Mr. Coleman walks very much in the shadows of series like Louis and Master of None. And while it never quite reaches the heights of either of those shows, it still exhibits a great deal of ambition. Right now, I'm an absolute open vein for a show like this. It's tender, smart, and funny. It hit me in all the right ways, and I suspect I'm not alone in needing a show like this right now. I'm very keen to see. Uh, I would. It's interesting we're talking about Val Kilmer because I would put Joseph Gordon-Levitt in that kind of... And you mentioned that he's not an especially warm presence or someone you've warmed mm. to on screen, but um, in that regard, I think he's done some great support work in... in clearly on television and in some movies like Inception, but um, he had trouble moving into that leading man sort of role. Um, it looks like with Mr. Corman, from what you say, he, he's found that, and I'm keen to see, because I'm a big fan as well, um, and I've been waiting for him to sort of pick the right vehicle for his talents, and this could be it. Yeah, I, like, I was tweeting about it, the show the other day, and it just sort of seems like there's so many people that like him, but I would say, like, I really love this guy. I have no idea why. Like, there's nothing about him that I can specifically latch on saying to, oh, this is what he's all about. I know that in his real life, he's really sort of passionate about creativity and sort of maker culture from like a digital media perspective. Mm. But outside of that, like, I don't really know anything about him. I never really sort of get a sense of who he is as a person. I never get a sense of vibe from him at all. Like, he's very sort of at times dead behind the eyes. And I don't really mean that in a negative way, but like, it's just hard to connect with him. And yet, he's always so welcome on my screen. I don't quite understand what it is. Yeah, but they make a good point. The last sort of serious big screen effort he did, I think, was Robert Zemeckis's The Walk, where he played the, the tightrope walker that walked between the World Trade Centers. And um, I think he did the... the uh, Philippe. Yeah, Philippe, yeah. And he, did the, and he did the Snowden film as well, both of which... He did perfectly good jobs with, but which lacked a bit of spark, which seemed, which sort of seemed to be at arm's length with the actor, those, those performances. So um, 
like I say, maybe a more simpler figure in a, in a, in a more simpler show like Mr. Corman is, is going to work for him. So that's on your Apple TV Plus platform. Um, check it out. So yeah, that's dropped this week. First two episodes are available and then it's dropping weekly from here. And I have to say, I'm kind of curious to know how it's going to go on a weekly basis because I watched five episodes back to back and the show built for me really nicely. But I do wonder if watching a episode to episode may leave it just a little bit, uh, leave the audience wanting for more. Dan Barrett, we're officially at the screen watching middle bit of the show. A conversation that you and I have been having, Simon, over the last couple of weeks, if not a few months, has been sort of around these comic book movies. So... This obviously the Suicide Squad this week. And what you and I discuss when the microphones aren't on is the comic book movies that no one else really talks about. So these are the movies that are like the forgotten failures, the ones that people may not necessarily know are based on comic books, like the things happening around the margins. Yeah, look, not everything can be Batman. Not everything can be the Avengers. There are efforts made by the Hollywood creative types to launch... Uh, comic book adaptations, superhero films uh, that don't get off the ground. And yes, there are the big high-profile duds like Howard the Duck and like the Green Lantern that we see um, and know of. But there's a whole sort of subculture, subgenre of films and TV series that have died a terrible death. Um, maybe that was earned and maybe it wasn't. Do you want to start this off? Okay, so we were discussing this and where I thought I maybe wanted to start is one of the Uh, some of the properties that people may not necessarily know were based on comics. So these aren't even really necessarily failures. These are just comic book movies that were based on comics. And I think mainstream audiences are just like, well, you know, it's just kind of, for example, The Addams Family. Okay. Technically not a comic book based on a comic strip, Mm. but The Addams Family, I think by and large, the comics are a forgotten aspect of it. People think about it more as the quirky 1960s TV series. Uh, The Addams Family, like, have you ever read the comic strips that was based from did you even know it was based on a comic strip? yes no i certainly knew it was based on the, the the comic strip but no i've never read in fact i don't even think it was in syndication or still being printed when when i was a wee lad so um no i i, I have never read it yeah i've never been able to come across them like i've never seen a compilation book of them like they've just you know i, I appreciate this is ephemera that exists somewhere but you know no idea but we've got two fantastic movies out of it and then you know some additional stuff around uh, something else which I have read and I think is a great comic and a fairly good film, Blue is the Warmest Colour. Wow, now see, I did not know that was, and I guess, is that a graphic novel? Uh, yeah, so it's actually a proper sort of novel shape to it. It wasn't a serialised book by any means. Okay, so that was a very high profile, very successful French film, but I did not know, even though it is one of my four favourite films that I point to on my letterboxed uh, account. You can go there and see what I watch every day. But I did not know it was a um, a graphic novel adaptation. Yeah, uh, yeah, and really quite good. So it's a black and white book. Uh, Barbarella, which is another French sure. uh, comic property, which uh, obviously the fantastic Jane Fonda film. Something which and I was just sort of doing a bit of a cursory sort of look around at uh, films that would be based on comics. Something I did not realise was based on a comic at all. Weird Science. Oh, okay, no, I did not know. John Hughes must have been a fan. Yeah, so in the 1950s, there was a number of... Uh, like, there was a period after the 40s where superheroes weren't in vogue anymore. And so horror comics became a big thing. Uh, Westerns were another sort of very prominent um, category that the kids were reading quite heavily. Uh, but one of the horror series was this thing called Weird Science. And so there was a number of issues that Weird Science made. 
And apparently I think it's like issue five has a story which became the premise for Weird Science about some nerds creating a girl. That is interesting because another favourite film of mine, although let's say it maybe hasn't aged well in this uh, this woke environment, but it's, um, but it's a fun movie, that's for sure. No, I did not realise it was that. Did you know, and I'm sure you did because mm. you're all over the TV universe, uh, there was an adaptation of Swamp Thing, which had a very sort of high-profile launch and was keen to be one of the first sort of DC um, TV series on the CW, starring Crystal Reed as Abby Kane, had a good support cast with Will Patton and Jennifer Beals and Virginia Madsen that went absolutely nowhere, a single-season drop in 2019. Um, I've been fortunate enough to watch it on on the old physical media and um, I can say it's pretty terrific and the first couple of episodes watching it with a uh, the background of a, a pandemic in the air no pun intended the Swamp Thing is is makes for pretty terrific television. So two things. One, I believe there was actually an initial Swamp Thing series uh, back in the early 90s, like a syndicated Yes, series. there was, yes. Yep, another one that sort of fell in a bit of a heap. Yeah, uh, this show they made, so it wasn't actually made for the CW. It was made for DC Universe, which was a app that people could download. And there were a number of original DC live-action oh, shows that were made for interesting. it. Interesting. So people have been watching the Tyson series on Netflix. That was originally commissioned as a DC Universe app series, along with Doom Patrol was the other series created. So they had this Swamp Thing series, and they were halfway through production, and then I think there was the decision made they were going to shut down the app in terms of uh, the live-action shows being commissioned for right. it. And I think they got right towards the end of the first season and then about two episodes shy, they decided to shut down production and just kill it off. So I think they got halfway through an episode when production closed. So it's, it's certainly not a complete show. And I think you're looking about like eight episodes, but there yeah. were 10 planned for Yeah, it. it's such a shame because like it's a it, it, it's a handsomely mounted production. It's The showrunners were the, were the two guys that went on to do uh, the big screen adaptation of It. Um, so they know Scary and... The creature itself, while still a bit naff in past, let's face it, it's a big swampy monster, um, has an interesting backstory and a real environmental sort of angle to the to the storytelling. If you can get a look at, at DC Swamp Thing, I don't know if it's on any of the streaming platforms. It's certainly available in your JB Hi-Fi dump bins to, to pick up very cheaply, but it's definitely worth a look. Did you know in 2007 there was a single-season series viciously torn apart by critics and dumped very quickly of mm. Flash Gordon. Yes. Okay. So this was made, I think, for the sci-fi channel. It was. Last I've seen it around. I've never, yeah, I've never been able to bring myself to press play on it. <laughs> 22 episodes all up, including the pilot. Uh, they were trying to turn the Flash Gordon story into a type of a, a Smallville kind of success, uh, recreating it for the, for the, uh, you know, the new millennium. Didn't work at all. Um, there's a quote from F SFX magazine that called the worst TV program they'd ever reviewed. <laughs> Starred someone called Eric Johnson, who I is such a bland name, but I don't know whether we want to mm. do anything else. But yeah, 2007, they tried to relaunch Flash. Ah, didn't happen. Flash Gordon is one of the uh, King King features syndicated uh, comic book or comic strip characters. And there's actually a whole bunch of them that I think would actually translate really well to a shared universe TV like landscape. I think there is so much potential for a Flash Gordon series yep. that is just never really quite been tapped into. Also, the Phantom is one of these King syndicated, yes. uh, King feature syndicated things. Uh, Mandrake the Magician, like these are three great characters that really could survive as like their own series that could also be interlinked. 
in the mid eighties, there was an animated show called Defenders of the Earth. And that actually brought these characters together and created a few new characters to sort of grow out that universe a little bit. But like that still plays around the place. You can find that on a lot of the cheap linear streaming services you get from the US. Uh, there's always like a cartoon channel on there and you'll find Defenders of the Earth was clearly quite cheap to buy because it pops up on all of them. But I kind of feel like this is a very viable property that hasn't been tapped into yet. But I reckon watch for the next couple of years, you'll certainly see something like this happen. And in other exciting news through the week, um, it's been announced that Taika Waititi, who did a great job with Thor Ragnarok and just about everything else, and who turns up in the Suicide Squad just quietly, um, he -hmm. is doing a live-action version of Flash Gordon. He's uh, developing developing that as we speak. So that's kind of big news. Yeah, but also Tiger's been announced for about like 55 different things over the last year and a half. So let's see what actually gets made. He's linked to everything. Now, we, yeah, we have talked about superheroes a little bit more. Something that I thought was worth mentioning in this segment is, did you ever see that there was a documentary made called Doomed, the untold story of the Roger Corman Fantastic Four? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In yeah. fact, have you ever seen the Fantastic Four? So I have. So back in the early 90s, this is when Marvel was in bankruptcy. The comics were performing quite well, but like the company was just being mismanaged out the wazoo. They decided they're going to generate a whole bunch of cash by selling off the film rights to a bunch of their characters. So if people have been confused as to why Spider-Man is a Sony um, thing as opposed to the Disney-owned Marvel films, the reason for that is that this was part of this sort of cash sell back in the day where Roger Corman, the king of Z-grade features, sure. is that unfair? No, it's not we'll unfair. He's never been a, a, a critical favourite, although he's made a lot of money off some very cheap movies. Yeah, he operates somewhere between D and Z. Uh, essentially, he made like he got the rights of the Fantastic Four and made a very cheap movie, and it was made super quickly mm-hmm. with the idea that he wanted to retain the rights. So the rights were going to disappear soon. So as long as he got something into production churned it out like he'd be able to maintain it eventually that ended up being on sold onto fox who then went off and made some i think two big feature films that i never saw based on a fantastic four yes but there's this terrible movie that never got released called the fantastic four the only real sort of evidence that this film existed beyond the occasional youtube rip that you see floating around the place is this documentary called doomed and this is have you seen the doco i have yeah i was i, I, I yeah. went down deep in a rabbit hole when this sort of first surfaced in the mid 90s and um yeah i've seen the documentary and i have seen one of those youtube rips of the the, the film which is pretty bad look the film's terrible and you watch this doco where the cast of the movie talk about their experience of making the film and the problem I would have with this doco is that at no point do they ever acknowledge that this is a terrible movie that is no good and is pretty much unwatchable. Oh. Instead, they talk about this is why it was made and this is the great experience we had making it. But there was so much that was in this movie that was great and it's a shame the world could never really see it. And the thing is, these actors are all delusional because there is nothing great about anything that went on there. If the documentary had actually explored this complete turkey and acknowledged it for what it is, I think this would be a hugely entertaining documentary. Unfortunately, it's just fan-wank drivel for something which doesn't even really have fans. Yeah, it's a thoroughly objectionable film and the doco should have touched on that. But it's, it's And the only sort of name actor I remember from, from in the film was Jay Underwood, who was the boy who could fly in that lovely little film. But um, he was, ter- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was terrible. I think he was... Was he the Johnny Storm character? Or, I don't know. It's who yeah, I think that might be right. Yeah, 
okay so um if you can see a dodgy scratchy vhs rip on youtube of the 1994 fantastic four do give it a shot because it's a ball um and the it's dude- funny you say that because i was going to say if you do find it don't <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not benefiting your life at all i assure you Okay, so those are the films you may or may not know of. Um, oh, hey, I've got I've got a couple more. Oh, I you do? Quickly rattle off. Lovely. Okay. In the same way, in the same way, Simon, that the Fantastic Four had this dodgy. Oh, he's uh, on fire now, folks. Production. Look at him go. <laughs> uh, we've got Captain America, where I believe there were two movies made. Yeah. Not in the US, they were made in Italy, uh-huh. but for like a US distributor, and you can actually find at least one of them streaming on Stan here. So yes. I, I've not seen either of these films. Okay, but Albert, apparently they're quite terrible. One of the great sort of uh, B movie makers of the the eighties and nineties, Albert Pyun, who's made some great sort of action films along the way. He did a version of Captain America with Matt Salinger as uh, yes. the captain, uh, and with not a bad support cast: the late Ned Betty, Ronnie Cox, Melinda Dillon from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, all in in roles. And that sort of had a release here. I often refer back to my home video days, and I actually sold that when I was a rep. And it was released by, uh, I think, Columbia TriStar Pictures here in Australia. So, yes, yeah. Albert. So that's what that's what's streaming on Stan right now. Right. Okay. So that's um, that's not really worth watching. But have a look at it in as a, as an oddity. What? Yeah. Uh, one of the big sort of Warner Brothers efforts of the mid '90s was an attempt to try to make Shaq a cinema star, <laughs> and they put him in this movie called Steel, oh which was God. based on in. In the early to mid-90s, they killed off the Superman character in the comic books, which you may remember that because uh-huh. it was a big pop cultural event at the time. But when they killed him off, they brought back four different Supermen. And the idea was that much like Jeopardy hosts, they were going to be competing to become the ongoing Superman going forward. <laughs> uh, so there were four. So there was Superboy, which that character is where the King Shark character came from in Suicide Squad. Yep. Uh, you had this character called Steel, which was like this African-American guy who was a like computer... Um, weapons technology guy named john henry irons and so his nickname was steel and then he had like these two other supermen uh eventually the real superman came back and on they went but the steel character existed so they spun him off into this movie with uh shack starring as the titular steel my understanding is that when you watch the film it's got no connection at all to superman as a character instead it's just trying to use the steel ip uh my understanding is the film's terrible but I've always been curious about checking it out. Check and it's it widely out. available, so yes. it's quite easy to find. The other one I just wanted to briefly mention is one that I've got a lot of fondness for, is in the late 70s, there was a TV series made by CBS about Spider-Man. It starred Nicholas Hammond from The uh, Sound of Music. Yes. I loved this as a kid. I used to rent out the... Because in Australia, we got them just as VHS releases, and it was like an edited compilation. So... To my mind, these are Spider-Man movies that were made in the late 70s, but they're actually from a TV series that have been edited down for international markets. But if you can check out the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man, I think he makes for a really fun Peter Parker. The series itself, like it's very 1970s in its production in that it's very quiet, it's very stilted, and there's not really a whole lot of energy to any of it. But it's still kind of fun watching Spider-Man walking around in 1970s New York. Okay, so this is where this slight age difference that you and I have... Uh, has a has a, a rare impact because I they uh, the Nicholas Hammond re-edit was actually released as a cinema title here in Australia which I saw so it was a yeah. a big it was a it was a you know big screen cinema release before it went to, to television and I the, he was always my Spider Man for a long time that in the the animated series so yeah well put up good good call back on um on the Nicholas Hammond Spider Man 
Anyway, that's my list taken care of. Did you have anything else, Simon? I had one thing called Painkiller Jane because I was a big Christina oh. Loken fan out of the, the Terminator movie she was in. Um, this was a sci-fi series. Uh, she plays a woman with special healing powers. It aired in 2007. So there was obviously a, a bit of a surge in the early 80s to, to get... Um, some uh, some new properties up and running. Your instant sort of exhalation of air when I said painkiller, Jane, suggests that you have some knowledge of it. Look, some knowledge, but I can't say I've ever read any of the comics or seen any of the, like, was it a TV series or the film series? I don't remember. TV, yeah. I feel this is like another sci-fi channel. It was, thing. yes, sci-fi series, yep. Yeah. Mm. Excited by it. Whatever happened to Christina yeah. I was Logan. just excited to hear someone mention it. Like, outside of this segment, I don't think it's been referred to in, like, a good decade. I think this middle bit has run its course. That was the screen-watching middle bit. Dan Barrett, we are looking at the week ahead now. There's quite a few interesting things popping up on our big and small screens. Let's go with the small screen first. Probably most notable is the launch in Australia of the Paramount Plus Network. You're the TV guy. What can you tell us? Okay, so we do have yet another streamer launching in Australia. Paramount Plus is an interesting beast in that... How do we even approach this? Okay, we'll talk about the history of it briefly, but I hope I don't put anyone to sleep. So about like five to eight years ago, CBS in the US said, you know what? People can access our shows online, but if they're going to do that, we're going to make them pay for it. So they launched this thing called CVS All Access, which is exactly the same as in Australia if you've got, like, say, 9 Now or Plus 7, or sorry, 7 Plus, it's been rebranded, or Channel 10's 10 Play. So it's exactly one of these catch-up services, and they thought, well, if we're going to make people pay to be able to watch episodes of NCIS and other CBS classics, then maybe we should have a couple of originals as well. So they launched The Good Fight as one of their originals for CBS All Access, you also had Star Trek Discovery was one of them. And then there was a couple of other series that were created that were kind of largely forgettable. The thing is that outside of The Good Fire, outside of Star Trek Discovery, there was no heat at all around CBS All Access. And so about a year ago, they rebranded as Paramount+. Plus. So effectively, they're using the exact same platform. It's still kind of a catch-up service for CBS content. But with the recent merger of two companies that were actually still owned by the same parent company, being CBS and Viacom, they basically smashed together their libraries and created a much more fulsome library. So you've got all the CBS programs, but then you've got like the deep archive of old Viacom stuff. So this is all stuff coming from channels like Comedy Central and MTV and Nickelodeon. So it's a very sort of deep library of stuff. But as is the case with all streaming services, they need to go global in order to be able to monetize this to a level that makes sense, to be able to commission original series as well as um, sort of do stuff. So one of the first places they're launching is in Australia with Paramount+. Plus. What we're getting in Australia is different to the US Paramount+. Plus. So where in the US you get a lot of the CBS stuff, like the next day will crop up on there. We're not quite going to have that same volume of stuff there as I understand it. But the real value in Australia comes from the fact that one of the cable channels that's owned by Viacom CBS is Showtime. And Showtime make a whole bunch of programs, say like Billions, for example. So a lot of their shows are not people's favorite shows, but they're certainly shows that people are excited to see week after week. They have a prestige, and do, they? Yeah, the Showtime is as, as a fairly prestige sort of label. Yeah, too. it's not quite HBO level prestige, no. but it's still sort of upper echelons of you're getting good quality series yeah. out of it. Uh, and then occasionally they'll do like event series, which get a lot of attention. So like the 
uh, Twin Peaks series from a couple of years ago. Like, that was a Showtime series. Right, okay. So, like, lots of really big, buzzy titles. Now, Stan in Australia have had all the Showtime series since the launch of Stan, but with the launch of Paramount+, Plus, all the Showtime series are now going over to Paramount+, Plus and they've left Stan. So, shows like Billions, which launched on Stan, that'll continue to be on Stan. But all these new series will now start launching on Paramount+. Plus. So, if you're thinking, I don't really need a new streaming service in my life, you're probably actually going to find yourself maybe gravitating towards Paramount Plus a little bit more because you've got these Showtime series that everyone's going to be talking about. Yes. So there's definitely value to it. And there's now, a- outside of that, oh, sorry, Simon. I was going to say there's also an element of first-run movies going on there. They've bumped the big-screen Mark Wahlberg film Infinite to their launch date of the 11th of August. Um, it's a sort of what would have been his big American summer release has uh, is now the launch feature film for for paramount plus yeah so paramount plus does have a like it's actually a really good library of titles so it's lots of big branded things like indiana jones films and like the godfather films like that sort of level of um, archive so it's a great library there they will have original films dropping there so infinite is the one you mentioned a bit of a dud film as i understand (laughs) it so launched to pretty much no fanfare at all onto the u.s paramount plus about two months ago uh, so it is going to be like the sort of big title they have at launch, but it's, it's not really that exciting. Uh, you are going to find a couple of uh, series that have a bit of a groundswell of interest here already. So shows like Evil, first season's been streaming on stand for the last couple of months. Terrific show. Have you checked this out? Yeah, I loved Evil. I think I think she's terrific yeah. in the lead role and I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. Yeah, so second season drops on Paramount+. Plus, and it's one of my favourite shows. I'm really into mm. it. Uh, the other sh- that shows from the guys that made The Good Fight and A Good Wife, Robin and Michelle King. Over the pandemic, they actually created this short little six-episode series called The Bite, and I've been desperate to try to find a way to see it. And as I found out the other day, it's going to be part of the Paramount Plus launch titles. So I'm excited to see that. Uh, just a couple of other titles you're going to find at launch. So there's going to be the new series of iCarly. There's a new SpongeBob SquarePants series called Camp Coral. There's a new Rugrats cartoon, which is pretty much unwatchable, but people will probably want to check that one out. Sure. Uh, there's a new show called Leonardo, which I'm pretty sure is a Leonardo da Vinci show. Uh, there's the aforementioned second season of Evil and The Bite. There's a Nancy Drew show that I don't think is particularly that good, but you'll find that on here and it'll probably have a bit of an audience that's interested in it. There's a show called Coyote, which stars uh, Michael Chiklis from The Commish and also The Shield. Uh, that show kind of came and went a little bit when it debuted in the US about two years ago, but that'll be worth a look. So there's going to be interesting new programs on it. And we're going to talk about this. At, okay, so the problem we have is we've been told about these shows on it, but the interesting thing to me is that deep library of content. So I know that at launch, it's going to have about 10,000 hours of TV shows on there. But what are those 10,000 hours? I don't know. And we're not going to know that until the 11th when this actually launches. So for people that listen to a podcast like this, you've probably got an interest in these older shows and it's not just these new titles coming through, but you probably want to know about what are like the obscure, really cool movies that are in that library. What are like those TV shows that you saw like 15 years ago that you've kind of got half a memory of that you'd like to be able to check out again. Uh, Wonder Shousen's finally going to be available in Australia and I might be here on Paramount Plus in a way that it is in the US Paramount Plus. We don't know. And it's not like Paramount Plus is going to be advertising these programs. So what we're going to do, Simon, is we're going to drop a special edition podcast during the week that's going to do a bit of a deep dive into the experience of Paramount Plus 
in terms of what we're getting here in Australia, in terms of what are the buzzy shows, but also what are the cool titles that we're finding deep in that library. We understand that we provide a service to the uh, population of Australia. <laughs> and part of what we're doing is creating this special episode of Screen Watching to look at the uh, the in-depth Paramount Plus back catalogue. So we'll be doing that hopefully sometime around Wednesday, Wednesday evening, maybe out first thing Thursday, but we'll try and get it out to you. So um, watch out for that. I'll certainly be promoting it heavily across the Facebook pages, uh, across whatever Twitter feeds I can get, and uh, we'll be letting you know what to watch on Paramount Plus. Look, absolutely. But Simon, Paramount Plus is not the only thing happening Good this Lord, week. What no. else is going on this week? Well... <laughs> Top Secret UFO Projects Declassified. Now, some of you may know that in another life, I'm the festival director of the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival. So when this sort of crap comes along, Top Secret UFO Projects Declassified, I leap at it. There is just this plethora of B documentaries across some of the other platforms, and Netflix thought they'd jump on board and try and... um, and do that a lot of these have come out in the wake of the u.s navy release of uh footage that uh purports to show a a ufo over the uh, the pacific ocean and how their fighters engaged with it this six-part series on netflix uses that as a starting point looks back at some of the famous moments in ufo sightings and alien abduction and stuff like that um as well as taking a more international perspective it's actually produced by a couple of czech uh, filmmakers and producers who um, uh, bring a really interesting take on it. This is maybe one of the better ones. If you're not a believer, this six-part series isn't going to do it for you, but um, it's on Netflix as we speak. Um, sure. <laughs> Something which is maybe even harder to believe than some of these UFO projects declassified is the fact that Paris Hilton is now hosting a cooking show on Netflix called Cooking with Paris. Yeah, that is a bit tough. And I don't think there's much more we really need to say about that. I was going to say that's, that sounds a bit hard to swallow, but the connotations as both the cooking show and Paris Hilton's past maybe isn't, makes it inappropriate. Anyway, probably also worth looking at What If is on the Disney Plus. Now, what do you know about this? This is one of the comic book things, one of the MCU <laughs> projects that's coming our way. What is it about? So this is deep dive comic nerdery oh, wow. is what this is. Okay. Comics are a really unique medium in that the people who read comics are not only just reading for the stories that are being published of the moment, but much like hardcore film people, like there's a film canon. So with comics, there's a canon of comics that people go back and read. So for example, in the mid-60s, Stan Lee and uh, Kirby created the Fantastic Four. Yes. So if you're a hardcore comic book reader, you've probably gone and read those early issues with the like the origins of the Fantastic Four. Those origins have been told many times since, but like film where you go back and you watch the classics, say like a Maltese Falcon or a, you know Citizen Kane, you go back and you read these early comic book stories. And often with comics, the maturity of them in terms of their storytelling isn't particularly you know as sophisticated as the modern era that you go back from to read these things. Right. But they're still very interesting to see the early construction of these stories. So there is this comic book canon And throughout the, I think it's like 1980s going into the early 90s, Marvel Comics released this series called What If? And what it was, basically every issue, it was like a short story, which looked at one of these sort of big stories from the Marvel canon, like the things that everyone is aware of over the years. One of the story canon from Marvel is the character of Iron Man, Tony Stark. He had a drinking problem. Okay, so... 
what if might tell the story of what if Tony Stark never kicked his drinking problem and he just became like more of an alcoholic? Oh, like what I would happen see. then? So it's like- and then you see the ramifications as to what's happened across the Marvel Universe, often touching upon Marvel canon. And you start seeing how the world would be entirely different if this one thing had changed about the Marvel Universe. Ah. Uh, there was a story I remember with Spider-Man and I don't remember exactly what the deal was. But he had taken a serum or something, which gave him like more spider qualities than uh, he originally had. So Spider-Man could climb walls and shoot webs and stuff. Um, although I think in Marvel lore, he doesn't technically spin webs. That's a device that oh, Peter Parker created emails about to spin that? the webs. Oh, okay. Probably. <laughs> uh, but it was Spider-Man. What if he grew eight legs and arms like a spider Sure. Did? Okay, like so a, this sounds interesting. The, the, the alternate universe... Alternate timeline element is something I find really fascinating. I know you and I both love For All Mankind, the Apple Plus series, which is exactly yeah. that, sort of the, the space program history, but spun off in a different different alternate sort of timeline. So this sounds really interesting Absolutely. to me. So what's kind of unique about this is it's an animated series, and what it does is looks at elements of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so the stories that everyone's familiar with because we've seen them on TV and movies for the last couple of years, and looks at elements of those and says, what if this happened instead? And so the animated feature will follow that. Okay. So, so I think it's like eight to ten episodes maybe, and yeah. I think it'll be fun. We've got that to look forward to next week. There's a couple of movies debuting on streaming. Already on Netflix, actually, is Pray Away. This is a documentary which looks at the uh, Pray the Gay Away movement um, and uh, people who have dealt, have to deal with the aftermath of of their actions, the the, um, groups that... Uh, conservative groups that have really forced this on on the gay community and also on netflix is sorry just to clarify is this a positive or negative look at the pray the gay away movement oh it is a very negative look at the pray the gay away movement (laughs) there isn't really a positive angle to it dan but there's a um it's It's probably a matter of perception i guess (laughs) i just want to make sure you weren't sharing propaganda movies with us no not at all no it's a it's a very powerful very disturbing film and um uh, shows exactly what that sort of turn of the millennium movement, the damage it actually did. Also on Netflix, a film called Vivo, which is Sony Pictures Animation's new film featuring the songs of Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's everywhere at the moment. Um, uh, don't know much about it. Keen to see it. Looks very pretty. Simon, actually. something we like to do here on the podcast each week is we like to look at the week of history, the events that we'll be marking from the 7th of August going through to, I believe, the 12th, the 13th, whenever we release the next episode of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a very sad week in history this week. Um, we had on August 9, 1969, the, 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 the Manson murders and the, the death of Sharon Tate and there's other people in the... And in the in the um, building in in Hollywood, very sad and just awful the way I think back. And if I had one complaint about the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood story, is that it is that it it, it added to the sort of not fandom, but I guess sort of base interest of Manson. I find the whole Tate murders just sickening. Um, August nine, and then on August eleven in twenty fourteen was the day we lost Robin Williams. Major bummer this week in the history section. Let's get on to the birthdays. Look, just on the subject of Mr. Williams, it's one of those moments where I actually remember quite clearly the moment where I read that on the screen because oh. it was just such a profound like shock to me. Yeah, I was the same. I was very fortunate to have met Robin Williams when he came out here to promote Good Morning Vietnam. I actually spent half a day with him oh, wow. um, as he did the, the uh, promotional circuit for the film. Um, I remember where I was when when my wife rang me and said, "Have you heard the news?" And I said, "No, what?" And Robin Williams had passed away, and I was totally shocked. And it it, it has impacted me like uh, 
the death of few celebrities really have. He was a, such a lovely man. Um, what would you watch? If you had to watch a Robin Williams film, clearly Good Morning Vietnam was the one that the film that at the time captured that balance of drama and comedy that he matured into. Um, what would it be for you? So for me, I've not actually seen Good Morning Vietnam. It's actually high up on my list of things I've been meaning to watch the last couple of months because it dawned on me I hadn't seen it. So it seems like something I do need to check off the list. I actually watched Dead Poets Society for the first time a couple of months ago and I didn't really like the movie very much. It really frustrated me for so many reasons. But if I was to think of the Robin Williams films, uh, Robin Williams screen career and the two things that really sort of capture like his essence to me, I'd want to watch an episode of Mork and Mindy, which I've watched quite recently and holds up remarkably well. Gosh, that's an entertaining show. Uh, and also, uh, for me, Good Will Hunting. I mean, it's not probably not really the strongest movie that it was ever in, but there was just something about his performance in that film that really just resonated with me as showing the sort of more serious yeah, side of Robin Yeah, that Williams. was mature age Robin Williams at his very best and thoroughly deserving of the Oscar award. To see him in full flight or to hear him in full flight, you'd watch Aladdin, of course. Um, he made a terrific, very strange little film called uh, The Survivors with Walter Matthau about a couple of um, gun nuts who decide to go and live off in the, the wilderness for a while and how they clash terribly. It was one of Walter Matthau's last films. Um, but it was Robin Williams uh, finding that balance between his crazy on-screen persona and the and the everyman figure that we all love. So... Um, we miss Robin Williams. We miss Sharon Tate, quite frankly, as well. So very sad week in history. Let's brighten things up with birthdays. On August 7, Charlize Theron was born in Bonona in the Transvaal. That's my <laughs> South African accent. That, that's Terrible. what I was. And look at this for an interesting... <laughs> Let's look at the this interesting sort of uh, uh, almost spooky, you might say, um, uh, lining up of birthdays of David Duchovny, born August 7 in New York City in 1960, and then only two days later, well, eight years and two days later, Gillian Anderson, born August 9th in Chicago, Illinois, and they both, of course, went on to star in a little show called The X-Files. Okay, I should check that out sometime. Yeah, you really, you really should. Yeah. Um, the great man Robert Shaw, the late great Robert Shaw, he passed away in 1978, but if you don't know the name, you know him as the man who says, I'll catch a shark but I'll kill it for 10,000. He was the great quint in Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Um, if you haven't seen a lot of Robert Shaw's films or if you've only seen Jaws, get on it. He was an extraordinary talent. And brother of Liam and the other one, we've got Chris Hemsworth, who celebrates his birthday on August 11, 1983. And he was born in a small town called Melbourne, Victoria. Liam and Luke. Luke. Well, I'll be. Mr. Foster, let's get out of here. Folks, this has been Screen Watching. My name, it's been Dan Barrett, will probably continue to be. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. It's located at alwaysbewatching.com. And there you can find each day the big stories in TV, streaming, and film sent directly to your email inbox. And on Fridays, you can find the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that very week. I'm on the Twitter at Simon R. Foster One. You can read my words over at ScreenSpace at screen-space.net. Do visit the Screen Watching Facebook page, who we put a lot of which we, 
do visit the Screen Watching Facebook page that we put a lot of effort into every week at Screen Watching Podcast. You'll get a steady stream of screen news from around the world. And don't forget to check out our Screen Watching YouTube channel. There's a whole lot of our uncut interviews there, fresh trailers, uh, plus more. Um, lots of stuff going on at the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival this week. Hey, did you hear the good news that the Sydney Festival changed their dates and dropped it right on top of my film festival, Dan Barrett? That made for a fun start to the week. Screw you, Sydney Film Festival. <sighs> I'm outraged on your behalf. You but should be. Maybe you can capitalise on it. But we're going to push ahead. We, look, we, we, hey? Maybe you can capitalise on it. Maybe people can come once to the Sydney Film Festival not realising they're not actually there for the regular film festival. That's exactly what I'm going to do. We're, we're uh, <laughs> readjusting our SEOs as we speak so that when people start searching for Sydney Film Festival, they're going to get Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival. Yes. And we'll get a whole lot of people turning up for three-hour Filipino documentaries in black and white, and they'll be getting some crazy science fiction film. So, yeah, take that, Sydney Film Festival. I spit on you. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Now, you can follow the YouTube channel, you can follow the Facebooks, but don't neglect this podcast. You can follow Screen Watching via your favorite podcast app. Load it up now, hit the follow button, and the podcast will just flow on in. Simon, next week we're back again for another Screen Watching. What are we doing? Well, if the internet will have us, it's uh, we're going to have a look at Apple TV's CODA. This was their big acquisition from last year's Sundance Film Festival. CODA stands for Children of Deaf Adults and is uh, apparently one of the most wonderful films you've, you'll see this year. I haven't seen it. We've got an interview with Jonathan Hensley, who's the director of the new Liam Neeson action pick, The Ice Row. What do you know about The Newsreader, the new ABC TV show? I know that there's a new ABC TV show called The Newsreader, which I haven't seen well, yet, but I've got a screener ready to go. Oh, okay. I've got to check that out. Um, okay, so that's going to be a very busy screen watching next week. Dan Barrett. Well, Simon, I guess we're going to talk about all that and more on next week's screen watching. As always, it's been a pleasure.